Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And it's great to be with you here again. And Philip, you're away speaking again on this last weekend. You get around a bit, don't you? Yes, yes. It was a great weekend down in Canberra. How are you feeling today? A little tired from the day after, but uh, (laughs) it was a terrific time to be away with lovely Christian people. And you were speaking about the Holy Spirit again, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Well, having done the work for the book, now's the time to be actually talking about it. It's all still in my head, rolling around. We had another good series on the Holy Spirit. Well, today we're going to talk about words and language again. We we opened up that topic a few weeks ago when we were discussing modernization and how language shifts and changes. And I had a second and a further thought about that I thought we should discuss. But before we get to that, we've had some lovely and interesting emails in from and messages from uh, different listeners and readers. And I thought we should just touch on a few of those while we have the chance. Terrific. Um, Let's hear them. Uh, well, first of all, we've had a number of really fun emails from various people on the episode to do with me and my coffee and, wh- and whether... Uh, you are laughable on that subject. I am indeed. I am indeed. Um, and some good banter back and forth with people about the nature of their coffee. And, and I was saying to them, look, don't worry. It's not that Philip is trying to teach the doctrine of demons in 1 Timothy 4, where he forbids you to receive the good gifts of God, such as beautiful coffee. But there are a couple of readers who really did get the point, apart from all the banter and the fun. And there was a lovely email here from Evie, who's written in to say this. I do have some invested interest as something of a coffee snob uh, in your episode, but the discussion of relationalism and the importance of inefficient time in being human was something I found particularly helpful in connecting the dots of my own observation of mature Christians and how they go about doing life in relationship with those around them. Having the words to describe and understand this approach has, I think, even in the last 10 days, helped me to be more intentional in the day-to-day decisions in my commitments to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that a lovely comment? Good on you, Evie. That's fantastic. You will enjoy it, but I'm sure your brothers and sisters in Christ will enjoy more of you. Exactly, because that was just the point, wasn't it? That Mm. uh, It's not really about coffee or not coffee. It's about an approach to community and relationships and other people that prioritises other people over our own particular wants. So thanks, Evie, for that comment. That was great. I still want you to learn how to drink international roast. <laughs> now, listen, I enjoy international roast. I grew up on international roast. <laughs> yes, you look like you have. <laughs> and, um, and I still do enjoy it. It's a very pleasant brown drink. That's how I like to think of it. It's a, it's I was a, at a conference the other day where they said you could have the uh, coffee out of the coffee cart or you can drink the mud that's in the kitchen. <laughs> You've just got to not think of it as the same kind of drink. I think yeah. If you just think of it as a pleasant brown drink that tastes yes. perfectly fine, you can enjoy it. Yes. It's just... Quite so. Let's move on, shall we? Let's move on, shall we? There's some other really good questions came in on our episode about being unhappy in church. Quite a number of comments from people just thanking us for that reminder at various points to, to about our attitudes to others and ourselves. But a couple of particular questions came in. Natasha wrote, uh, in respect to being unhappy in church... What if you're in a a region, perhaps a country or region or a more remote or rural kind of situation where there just aren't any good churches? What's better? Is it better to go to a church and stick in a church that, say, is teaching liberal theology or not teaching the Bible and stick at it and at least you're at, at a church? Or is it better to stay home? And I know she's got some friends who are... Um, facing precisely this dilemma, um, who are good Christian people, um, what do you think is better, a bad church or no church? That's a, it is a hard one, isn't it? And you know, for those of us who live in the city, it's a non-question. 
But we had a lovely friend who spent a couple of years in Saudi Arabia, and in his two years there, he did not meet another Christian. That's a hard way to live without any fellowship with anybody. I mean, Natasha's question is not that extreme, but it's still that kind of problem. What happens when you go to bad churches or have a long time without hearing good Bible teaching? It's like getting teeth decay. It's like, you know, what happens if you don't brush your teeth regularly? If, if you don't keep reading the Bible, being encouraged by it, being taught by it, and engaging with other people over the Scriptures, then your grasp of the Bible slowly weakens over time. And so it's important for your Bible learning to then engage somehow in doing it. Now, the beauty of the internet is that we have a plethora of Bible teaching. So you can find good, solid Bible teaching. There's this terrific course from Moore College. I remember when my wife was teaching in the country, and she wasn't my wife at that time, but she was remote and away. The PTC course she found a fantastic way of keeping her Bible knowledge growing and not just being static, let alone falling behind. And so doing the external course from Moore College is a great way to keep that aspect of it. But church online and external courses, etc., are not the same as church. You still lack the, the fellowship of God's people. And I think that's something that within a country town, let's assume it's a small country town, you still go looking for that other brother, that other sister who is in the town, who is in the same situation as you. You may well find them in one of the bad churches. And so you go there looking for the opportunity of either teaching the truth to the church, like Paul goes to the synagogue to teach the truth until he's kicked out, or you just get to know more of your neighbours and invite some of them to come and study the Bible with you. But finding the one or two Christians with whom you can share is a really important thing I would have thought to do. But going to churches which are liberal churches that are going to constantly undermine your faith is not a good thing to do. No, I wouldn't go. Not as a consistent, regular member, I wouldn't go. No, and it's you're pointing out that the, the function of church, we've talked about this before in other editions of, of this podcast, but the function of our, of our time together is to build one another through the word and prayer and through that fellowship. And we get together as a gathering and a regular assembly and we do that week by week and we do it in other ways. But if for whatever reason the regular assembly with some pastors and leaders to oversee it is just not available to you, you find whatever other way you can to gather and assemble with other Christians, even if it is just two or three who are gathered yeah, in his name. Two of you in the lounge room on a Wednesday morning. That's right. It's, it's fulfilling the same sort of function, and the function's more important than the yes. structure. Very helpful. And thanks for that question, Natasha. Great question. Another question, different sort of issue. Uh, David wrote in, pointed out something which, when he pointed out, yes, this does happen a lot. He was talking about those issues in our struggles in church, in our conflicts and arguments in church, that are about non-scriptural issues. They're not, not something that the Bible clearly and directly addresses. And he says, in my experience, one cause for real strife in these disagreements is that not only do the parties disagree, but they also disagree as to whether the issue is one of liberty or not. And so do we have any thoughts about how Christians should respond when they're unable to agree about whether this is a scriptural issue or not? Uh, because, of course, this does happen. It's not just you're disagreeing, for example, about baptism, but one party in the disagreement will be absolutely insistent. That this is not a matter of liberty. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. You must obey or else you're in sin. And the other side might be saying, well, hang on, not only do I disagree with you about the issue, but 
I disagree with you that it's so clear in the Bible that it's a matter of obedience. Well, I think that that lies in the, the discussions that Paul has in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10. And I, I think the direction that Paul takes is fairly clear. Uh, the other person's conscience mustn't be destroyed by your freedom, even if the other person's conscience is in error. And so the weak brother is seen as the one who, by conscience, is bound up in rules and regulations that the so-called, you would expect, stronger brother who's got the freedom and who can see that the issue is not really a matter of right and wrong, he is the one who should bend for the sake of the weak brother so that his actions and encouragements do not encourage a weak brother to break his conscience. Now, the weak brother thinks he's the strong one because... He's holding firm to the word of God. But in fact, he's the weak brother because he hasn't understood the word of God properly yet. The strong brother, by all means, should teach and instruct the weak brother to have a better understanding of God's word. But he mustn't force, push, in some ways, erode the conscience of the weak one who is still holding firm to his understanding of the word of God. Now, I think very often the ones who are on the liberty end, they're like Mrs. Clinton. They think the others are deplorable. They look down upon them. Whereas love seeks to build up, knowledge puffs up. And so that's where it is. Now, when both disagree, both think it's a matter of conscience, that's when you can't actually fellowship together anymore. Although it's a matter of incarnation, so to speak. That is, you and I can disagree over anything and still continue to relate together. But when it involves an action where we've got to do something, either one person's view or the other person's view is going to take place. Because it has to be done one way or another. One way or another. And baptism, I guess, is like this, isn't it? You yes. have to decide what you're going to do with baptism and you yes. have to have a practice of baptism that's incarnated, as it were, that's, that happens in your church. And once you make that decision, it makes it difficult. Yes, that's right. And that's why there are certain breaks in fellowship where people will not be in a church that does or does not baptise babies because they both think that it's a matter of not Christian liberty, but biblical truth. And therefore, we mustn't encourage people to break their conscience. It's better to have two different churches. One of the interesting things you mentioned, 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14, 15, the weaker brother and so on. One of the things David points out in his letter, and I hadn't read all of it, was that sometimes there can be even disagreements about who is the weaker brother. So in, he was talking about the <laughs> yes. uh, the COVID situation we had not long ago and disagreements Christians had about mm-hmm. regulations and rules and what should or shouldn't be done and should we should we all wear masks for the sake of those who think that masks should be worn and in that circumstance, who is the weaker brother? And It can be complex, can't it? Oh, it can be complex, yes. But I'm sure Paul's use of weaker and stronger is to undermine the confidence that those caught up in legalism who always think of themselves as stronger undermined but i think the other flip of undermining is when he says love builds up but knowledge puffs up and so he's helping one group who think they are superior because they keep the law he calling them weak and the other group who think they're superior because they have knowledge he calls them puffed up and either way he's undermining us in our disagreement. It's sort of cycling back to what we were talking about with with Evie's comment, really. It's about our relationships and our love and service of one another primarily, isn't it? Yes. Um, not, Not maintaining our position or winning our argument. No, but it is about obeying our conscience. And so 
those who have a conscience on an issue like, say, women preaching in church, they should not be forced to compromise their conscience. Their conscience could be wrong. Maybe the Word of God is is actually teaching a different thing. Their conscience may they be making an issue that is a non-issue into an issue. But they need to be persuaded not to be forced. And those who feel that they have understood more, and they now know that it's perfectly all right for women to be the preaching pastor of a church, that's a perfectly all right thing in God's eyes, they need to watch out that their knowledge is not puffing them up and they must be very wary of calling upon congregation members to defy their conscience by placing themselves under the authority of a woman teaching in contradiction to 1 Timothy 2. Well, David, I hope that's of some help. Thanks so much for the question. And thanks to all of you for your feedback and comments and um, and suggestions. Keep them coming. Uh, you can hit reply to the email that comes if you're a subscriber to Two Ways News. If you're on the email list, either as a free subscriber or as a supporter, just hit reply and the email comes through to us. Or if you're just listening to this on your podcast, you can always uh, email me at tonyjpain at me.com. And it sometimes takes me a few weeks just because I've got a lot of emails, but I do get back to everybody at least to say thank you for, for your uh, message and to give a little reply. So do, do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. But I'd love us to spend, to expand to such a group of people sending correspondence back to you that you won't be able to reply. Okay, so that you'll have to jump in and help me reply to emails. Is that what you're saying? Well, let's not push this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Philip, in today's episode, I want to move on from something or bounce off something that we talked about a few weeks ago. We were talking during our discussion of modernisation about the way that words inevitably change and that this is a perfectly right and normal thing. And it reminded me of um, of one of the common internet memes and it's sort of a catchphrase and a saying from that classic movie, The Princess Bride, um, where Inigo Montoya says, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. And that's been used as a as an internet meme for, for ages now and it's a, it's a great catchphrase. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about words because it struck me as I was thinking afterwards about our conversation that it's quite a common problem for us that as words shift and change, as they inevitably do, and as they must, it's not wrong that words shift and change, that's just the nature of, of language, but it sometimes leads us into problems, uh, sometimes small or funny problems, and sometimes more serious problems. And so, for example, we were talking in that episode about the word prevent, uh, prevent us, O Lord, in all our doings in the Book of Common Prayer, that word has just changed, so that to keep using that word in the prayer now would be kind of strange. In fact, it would be praying for something a bit odd. Because what would we be praying for now? Well, we'd be praying that God would stop us in all our doings, that yes. he would prevent us. That's what prevent means now. And what did it mean? It meant to go before, to, uh, to govern, to kind of go along in front of us. And so in modern translations of that prayer or modern versions of that prayer, it's go before us, Lord, in all our doings, or perhaps govern us, Lord, in all our doings. Um, which is what the original concept was about, right? Which is a lovely prayer. Which is a lovely thought. Well, there are, there are some times you want to say, especially about your children, prevent, <laughs> O oh Lord, in prevent, all their doings. Prevent them in all their doings. <laughs> yes. So sometimes the wrong word can, can just I, be funny like that. Yes. Uh, Montgomery, his father was the Bishop of Tasmania, the great general. 
and he had lots of children. Bernard was the youngest, and his mother used to say to the siblings, go and find Bernard and tell him to stop doing whatever it is he's doing. It's this prayer. That was her prayer. That was her prayer for him. (laughs) And look, sometimes the way we use words and the, the mistakes we make with them are just because we use the wrong word or we misunderstand what a word means. And as, as a pedant and as an editor all my life, I've, I've come across lots of these in my time. A couple of funny examples, for example, the word enormity always amuses me enormously. There we go, just to show the difference between the words. Because the word enormity in its original meaning in English over the last many centuries means something that is outrageously or heinously evil. So if you want to uh, describe an incredibly bad crime or act of evil, you can describe it as an act of enormity. For example, in this sentence, the bombing of the defenceless population was an enormity beyond belief. So it means something that's outrageously evil. But we've kind of started to lose that sense of what the word means, and now we just use it to mean something incredibly enormous instead of the word enormousness, which would be the correct word. And so it always amuses me enormously to use that word again, when the preacher says, and we must marvel at the enormity of God's love. Isn't it fascinating? Because if you'd said to me, which came first, enormous or enormity, I would have thought enormous came first, and enormity is a a, a modern extension of it. I don't know the history of the word. Um, You're saying it's the other way around. I'm not sure what the history of the word... Well, certainly it refers to an act of great evil. Yes, I hear the two meanings. Of greatness. You You can see the overlap. Oh, I can see. But when you describe enormity, it's something that's incredibly evil. But the interesting thing is that... And so we misuse it all the time, and preachers especially misuse it because it's sort of a more emotive word. Enormity is a a powerful piece of... The enormity of the cross. Now, the the cross was, in a sense, was an enormity. It was an act of great evil, but that's Mm. not normally what the... The preacher means when he describes it that way. Um, But it's interesting because the word is now used so frequently just to mean enormousness, incredibly big, that's now become one of the meanings of the word in the dictionary. So if you go back 100 years, that word, that meaning wasn't in the dictionary, and now it is. And gradually as time goes on, that's just what the word will mean. Because all the dictionary is doing are describing how the word is currently being used. It's reflecting used. common usage. That's it, what the it, dictionary does. Yes. Dictionaries don't give you a definition. Dictionaries just give you a description. They give you a snapshot description of what this word what means at word, this time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and the same thing, another really interesting one for, for me as a pedant is the word fulsome, mm-hmm. um, which sometimes you read in commentaries and in kind of flowery language and also in sometimes in sermons or lectures there'll be a sentence like, and he described his friend with fulsome praise, or he gave a fulsome treatment of the whole subject. Now, this is another interesting one where you think it just means really full, but it in fact means offensively, over-the-top, disgustingly full. And so the original meaning of fulsome was something overdone, something gross, something almost a bit sickening or disgusting because it was overdone. So fulsome praise would mean over-the-top, slightly sickening praise that had gone too far. But that meaning, again, just in common usage, most people just use it now as a fancy way of saying a lot Mm. or full. Mm. And so nowadays you'll find in the dictionary that meaning is one of the meanings, just a great deal, a lavish amount. And so I always get amused as well when someone says, I'd like to give fulsome praise to our our visiting lecturer. I thought, I don't think you really want to give fulsome (laughs) praise to him because that would be sickeningly over-the-top cloying kind of horrible over the, the kind top of stuff phrase. you'd hear in Collingwood from one actor to another. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so this is just fun, right? It's the way the words change. And, and not a great deal rides on this because we usually know what each other are meaning. But where it gets to be a problem, it seems to me, is where, especially when we're reading a text from another time and seeking to understand that text, for example, the Book of Common Prayer that we just talked about earlier, or more especially the Bible, because sometimes the English words we use to translate the original Greek and Hebrew of the Bible have shifted or moved or broadened or changed their meaning or connotation over time, as words normally do, so that they no longer convey what the Greek or Hebrew words originally conveyed. Sometimes it's a little bit more like Enoga Montea. The word's not what you think it means. So there's a, a lovely prayer about praying for government and judges who will act indifferently. Yes. And everyone wants to say, no, no, we want impartially. But actually indifferently is the right word because an impartial judge will take a bribe from both sides. An indifferent judge will not take bribes at all. So you actually want... It's not so much a change in word, it's it's our ignorance of words and what they, they mean. Indeed. Which is, I suppose, in some ways... Which in a different ex- century people knew. Knew, that's right. And when that was written, that's right. And sometimes it's the... As those words fall out of use or or as education standards change or as, as people don't read as much as they did, yes, it can just be a matter of, for example, no longer knowing what enormity or fulsome means yes. because you just haven't read and you don't know what those words mean. Yeah. Um, and the same can be true of, 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 as you mentioned. But with Bible words, it becomes particularly an issue because it means we kind of will read back into the scripture, which is the word of God that we take our cue from, that we that we love and long for and we obey and which shapes our minds and our thinking and we dwell on and which corrects us and reproves us, we'll read things back into the Bible based on what those words have now shifted to mean, the English words, that is, and so get ourselves into a muddle. And I I thought it'd be good to just tease out a few examples, to give some examples of that, of some Bible words or Bible examples of how the shifting nature of living nature of English, for example, means we have to be a bit careful when we're reading our scripture. And I think it's a, a more a problem for now than ever. That is, I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's right, that language is changing faster today than it did in previous centuries. That is, the Book of Common Prayer, the King James Version of the Bible, standardised the language for several hundred years. But television, radio, the nature of modern speech, it's changing words very quickly. We say that we're not a culture no one reads anymore. That's a a constant thing that is said. But in fact, we read an awful lot. It's just we read in short snatches. We read texts. Advertising. Advertising. We read articles. We read snippets. We read posts. Mm. We read... And so language is flowing around and through us all the time and subtly shifts. There's a torrent of it Mm. uh, that's part of our lives in a way that wasn't the case um, where we would either talk to our neighbours or we would read read something in print. And we and, could have a translation from 1611 through to 1880 without any need for updating. And you look at the 1880 revised version, 1884, I think, is, it's not all that different to 1611. But now we need new translations almost every decade. As because the language is shifting on. and changing. Mm. 
Now, some of those changes, interesting, some of the issues we have with Bible words are issues of transliteration. That is, uh, some words we have in English are just kind of the original Greek letters made into English letters. So I think we mentioned one a few weeks ago. Deacon, the word deacon is just mm-hmm. a, the Greek word diakonos mm. kind of rendered into English letters. Yes. And in that sense, mm. it doesn't tell us very much about what that original word means. Yes. Uh, paraclete. There we go, yep. Some translated as the advocate, some as the helper, some as the comforter, and some just put it as paraclete because they really don't know how to translate it. And you just turn the Greek letters into an, a phony English word. The word apostle is like that as well. It's from the yes. the Greek word to one who is sent. Mm-hmm. And because it's just become the traditional word, we have all kinds of associations with what we think apostle means. Mm-hmm. So that when we come to a verse such as in Hebrews 2, where it says that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession, we say, hang on, how can Jesus be one of the apostles? That, yeah, that, he's not one of the 12. No, no, yeah. how could he be his own apostle? But mm. when you realise it just means someone who is sent, it makes perfect sense of Hebrews 1 and 2 because the two big themes of Hebrews 1 and 2 is that, that God has sent his son into the world to become like us, flesh and blood, mm. and to die and make purification for sins as the great high priest, sent one and high priest, to kind of like a summary of those first two chapters. Mm. You but, wonder about the English word ambassador, whether that would be better for apostle. It would be a, it would be a better translation than apostle. That's someone who is sent to represent somebody else. We know mm. immediately what that means. Mm. But because we just have this word apostle, which is the traditional translation, and we find it hard to think of translating it in any other yes. way, it means that we don't always grasp what's going on in the text. Um, so there's some transliterations that sometimes don't render the original Greek in a way that we can understand. But perhaps more common and... Um, I think more interesting and sort of confusing and troubling for us are words that have been used, English words, ordinary English words that have been used to translate the Greek or Hebrew have been traditionally the words we've used for a long period of time, sometimes for centuries to translate those words, but which have shifted and broadened and changed so much that they almost now obscure for us what the original text is actually saying. And so we read the original text, we read it in English, that is, and we often miss what's going on because the word doesn't render anymore what the original was saying. So I thought I might sort of bowl up a couple of examples to you, Philip. Mm-hmm. Sure. So say, for example, the, one, the really common one would be church, a word that we get a lot in the New Testament. Yes. But which, as an English word, bears almost no relation to what the, the word behind it in Greek means. No, well, your standard word in the Greek is, say, Acts 19, where the word is used twice, once about a riot, a crowd, and another time about a regular um, court council meeting. A political assembly of some kind. And so the word basically meant a gathering. What kind of gathering? The purpose for the gathering? Well, that, that may vary, but... It was a congregation, a gathering. It had, a, in a sense, a fairly straightforward Greek meaning. It was a common everyday word, uh, yeah. a common word in the culture, in the society. And words are, work like that. They're part of a, a linguistic community, as they say. A, a word is, as we were saying before, it reflects the usage of the community of people who are using that word at the time. And what that word meant in Greco-Roman culture of the first century was a gathering, an assembly. We might say a congregation of people of some kind or assembly like that. And interestingly, every time you see the word church in your English Bibles, if you just do a little mental note, just cross it out mentally in your translation, right? Assembly, gathering, 
you won't go far wrong. And it often considerably changes what you're getting from those verses and those texts when you realise it's talking about a, a gathering of people. Because for us, of course, church has a whole series of of other and additional meanings. Yes, that's right. And it's interesting that mental crossing out does change the feeling, the 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 understanding of what you're reading. So we have a, an old convention of the name of God being translated as the Lord. We put it in uppercase so as to indicate that behind that lay the Hebrew name of God. We don't know how to pronounce the name of God and the Jews chose not to pronounce the name of God but rather to say the Lord, in order to avoid blaspheming the name of the Lord. But the Lord is, as a word, as a phrase, is impersonal, whereas the very point of the name is, it's personal. This is who I am. I am who I am. And so Jehovah is not how it's pronounced. And we know Jehovah's wrong. Yahweh's a better guess, but we still don't know that's right. And even then, how would you pronounce it? How anglicised are you in your pronunciation of your Hebrew, etc.? Uh, put in the name. Just read Yahweh. Just take a Bible passage, a psalm or two, and read the word Yahweh. And suddenly the thing feels different because to say Yahweh is God is different to say the Lord is God. Because you want to say, well, the Lord is God. Well, of course he is because he's the Lord. But when you say Yahweh is God... You are saying this particular personal God is God. And there's a bunch of them like this. Sometimes it it changes the feel, as you say, and lets you explore something that's going on in the text in a different way. For example, the word comfort. uh, Sometimes (laughs) uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we have the word comfort, the comfort of God, which we pass on to one another, and we comfort one another with the comfort we've received from God. That's an interesting one that shifted over time as well. Yes, quite dramatically, because it means to strengthen or to establish. There's the famous Bayer Tapestry where the bishop is comforting his troops by sticking his spear into their backs so as to move them forward, which is a million miles from the 20th, 21st century comfort, which is... A woolly blanket is, or American language, it's what we in Australia call dummies, is a comforter you put in the mouth of a child. It's it's to make you feel... It's to soothe. It's to soothe, to feel comfortable. Whereas comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Yes, there is a soothing comfort to it, but no... Be encouraged, be strengthened, is what is being said. And that's what the, that's what the English word comfort meant in the 16th, 17th centuries. Yes. Uh, from com forte. For, it's there in the word forte, strength. Ah, it, yes, of course. It's, about to, it's to bring strength to. Yes. Um, and, and so it translates in 2 Corinthians 1, it translates the Greek word paraklesis, which is encouragement. We would normally translate it encouragement, uh, exhortation. To stand beside and call on. It's it, to, exactly. It, it's to cheer on in a football game. You stand on the side of the lines and, you know, go ahead, go. It's that kind of. So if in 2 Corinthians 1, you just try substituting strengthen or encourage or urge on, it changes the feeling of the passage entirely yes. and um, helps you see things in the connections between the words that you might not have seen yeah. already. And there's a bunch of other classics we could look at. We could look at the word worship, for example, which is a particularly complex one because there's, I think, three or four four different Greek words, I think, that we often will translate as worship 
in our Greek, in our English New Testaments. Um, so what would you be using instead of worship? Well, those words mean different things. So sometimes the word underneath means to honour um, somebody, to give honour to a, a higher person than you, or to submit to that person. It can, it can mean to act in some way towards someone who is superior towards you in submission or in literally in bowing down, in falling on your face, in, in kind of prostrating yourself before somebody. Sometimes it can mean to serve that person, to do the service to the superior person that the superior person requires or is owed or is due. Well, what about praise? Well, let's stick with worship for a second. So, okay. So worship has the words behind it in the Greek have all these different sorts of connotations. For us in English, worship is almost entirely connected with church services. Even though we'll, we'll try and persuade ourselves that it's a bigger word than that and we worship God in all our lives, in terms of how we use the word worship, it's almost entirely in our... The semantic range of the word for us is connected with either church as an act of public worship or more recently, of course that time within the church service where we sing songs to God as an act of worship. And so because of how what the word has come to mean for us, we often will kind of miss what's going on in the text because we can't help but, but take the common connotation of what the word has now become in English and think that that's what the Bible's talking about in these different so places. That, that raises a slightly different issue. That is, yes, we can know that worship is a, a word that means something bigger than that, and we can talk about all our life being worship. But what you're saying is if the current usage is overwhelming, even though we know it means something else, we won't be able to... It's like the word priest. The, the, the Reformers tried to capture the word priest still because it really means presbyter, elder. But yet the kind of Catholic priesthood of offering sacrifices and the rest means that the word priest still doesn't capture eldership in our community, does it? It's still if that. you're thinking that when you say the word priest, the common person will think elder, you're fooling yourself, aren't you? Yeah, because that's not what they're thinking, is it? Exactly. And words take their meaning from usage and they shift and change. Now, you can try and fight for a word. But you and, can't win, can you? But I mean, you can't win. Not if the common direction is all in, in one in, and it becomes the linguistic community's judgment in the way they use the word that this is how we're going to use the word one per, you can stand up and protest but it's still going to be what's in most people's minds and that's why for example many years ago when we were having this discussion about whether worship was a good label biblically and theologically to talk about our church gatherings we come to church to worship that's the sort of primary kind of category one of the arguments I don't know if you may, but I certainly I remember I, I remember making was we've lost that battle in terms of what that word means. Trying to add something in front of it, say like corporate worship, or trying to kind of rescue that word, it wasn't ever going to work because it's because the word's gone in a sense. It's changed and shifted so much that as a description of that activity, trying to reflect biblical usage. Uh, it was always going to be a struggle and ends up teaching people the wrong thing. Well, help me with a couple of others then. Praise. Well, praise is interesting because it's a very Old Testament word, of course. We, we get a lot of our feeling of what praise is from the Psalms and from its, it's Old Testament usage. It's the basis of hallelujah, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's right. That's the praise the Lord has the Hillel kind of praise word and the Yah, the Yahweh word. Um, and in the Psalms and in the Hebrew, it, it means to advertise. It means to tell out how great somebody is so that their reputation and glory is demonstrated in front of everybody. And so you look at all the psalms that give the exhortation to praise, 
they all then proceed to go along and say how great God is, or they are, they are urging other people to do the same. That great hymn, Tell Out My Soul, The Greatness of the Lord. So praise is not music necessarily. No, it's got nothing to do with music intrinsically. Often you might set it to music because if you wanted to advertise and make a big noise about how great someone was, you might do it musically so as to kind of make the most noise and to, and to, and to declare it together as a group. Tony, I had trouble with coffee recently, but are you now telling me that a hymn is no more than an advertiser's jingle? <laughs> That's exactly what a well. That's what some hymns are. Not all hymns, of course, would be hymns of praise. <laughs> but what we're doing when we call on each other to praise the Lord is to tell the whole world in God's presence, or to tell God in everyone else's presence just how extraordinary God is. Look at all the amazing things that He's done. So that His glory, that is His brilliance and His reputation, is burnished and made famous before everybody. That everybody gets to see and acknowledge how great this. God is because of how many wonderful things he's done. And You're that's just what praising praise, him now. I am. And that's what praise is. And yet because that word has shifted so much, we come to the Psalms especially, and we really can't think of anything else apart from singing, and, and singing that's directed almost as a, a personal, devotional, affectionate response to God, where I'm interacting personally from a heart level to him and telling him and, and responding to him and being devoted to him. That's what we think the word means, whereas it doesn't. And okay. so we end up misreading all So the we come to church and we're welcome to our morning of worship. And then when we want to have a hymn singing session, we get the praise leader to come and lead in our praise. And say, let's all praise music. our great God together. Yeah. And you're saying both of those words are actually using Bible words unbiblically. Are they both lost? The, the, the shift is so great that it's silly to try and fight against that now. And we need just different words. I suspect so. Certainly in our, in our discourse in churches together as we talk about what we do, we need different words because we're kind of linking it implicitly to what the Bible's saying all the time uh, and not accurately reflecting what's there and maybe in our translations. Okay, that's praise. But really very important to me is what about faith? Because I, I don't think, Faith works in explaining, especially to non-Christians, what we're talking about. What's the dissonance then between how we use faith and what's going on when the biblical word is used that we translate faith? Well, it means irrationality. So you either think about something or you know about something, or alternatively, you just have faith. And so faith, you don't have to say it's a leap into the dark but that's what it is in everybody's in the common parlance of australian language to have faith means to have no evidence just want it and amongst the non-christian anti-christian should i say against the hardline atheist agnostic it means being stupid and so, um, so justification by faith alone means being stupid alone that's, yes <laughs> it is just it's a lost phrase, and you know, I think we just need other language, another word. Which is what we do when we preach and explain it. We say what's going on here is it's, we're talking about trusting in something, relying on something. We're talking about trustworthiness and as a faithfulness, or even loyalty as a kind of a, a sense of, of devotion to that which is trustworthy and true and staking your life on something. Your faithfulness still works. It's sort of still there, isn't it? It's faith doesn't. <laughs> it's is funny, isn't it? Yeah. 
But it's very hard to take faith out of the Bible uh, because it's everywhere and because, especially for those of us who uh, love the Bible, the great phrase like justification by faith alone is a, a fundamental shibboleth of our belief. <laughs> that we've been defending and teaching and explaining for, for yes. half a millennia, in yeah. English that is. That's right, but you talk to a younger Australian, I'm afraid the word does not mean what we think it means. It's, it's, it's not trust, it's not reliance, it's not depending, it's, it's being religiously superstitious. So this brings us to what we what we do about all this, the fact that we, we have words in English now, which in the normal way that language just shifts and changes, and this is not evil, it's just the way language always works, it's always changing. When our language ceases to communicate well what is really going on in the Bible's teaching, we have to do something about that. It presents us with a challenge. Now, what can we say? At one level, we can say it's a challenge for our translators. Absolutely, yes. And we need to pray for them and, and encourage and help them. And the real difficulty of precision in understanding Greek and Hebrew and, and this is the, the hard bit, precision in understanding where modern English is moving. You know what I mean? The old J.B. Phillips did a great translation because he was a journalist who knew how English functioned. But you need to be experts in both those things to give a good translation. And although in one sense in our modern world, we're able to generate translations, distribute translations. We have all kinds of access and distribution methods at our disposal more than ever before. It's also difficult in the modern world to get a new translation up and running and get it actually published and widely used because of the economics of publishing. Yes. And so if you're going to produce a whole new translation and you're going to publish it as a Bible, and you're going to invest all the money you need to invest in doing that, you're going to have to sell that Bible to a lot of people. Yes. And if you produce a Bible that no longer uses the word church, there's going to be a whole lot of people saying, oh, I don't want that Bible. I want a, bi- <laughs> I want a Bible that's a good, a proper Bible that uses yes. the word church. That's right. And a Bible translation that has no commonalities in church is a dud, is one of the problems. And in fact... Part of the problem now that I'm itinerating more is one of the things I have to do each time I'm going somewhere is to ask them which translation they're using so that I can preach on the translation they're using rather than my preferred translation. So we must pray for our translators and we must encourage and um, and urge our translators to keep doing this difficult task yes. of rendering both things and not being satisfied with uh, with those things. And it means that we can also make use of different translations to help see some of these options. Um, It's fascinating, for example, I've got a version of William Tyndale's translation at home on my shelf, and it's slightly modernised to make it more readable, but it's interesting to read Tyndale and his translation. It's not as if he's going to be perfect, but there's all sorts of points at which, in a kind of idiosyncratic way, he goes for a consistency of translation that's quite fresh and that helps you see some of these things. For example, in the word congregation, he uses the word congregation everywhere he sees the Greek word ecclesia, pretty much, as far as I can tell. And it leaps out on the page to you as you read these verses. Yes, but there's a danger in that, isn't there? That is, I've got five translations in front of me. I'll use the one that says what I like. (laughs) That says it the way I want to say it, or that makes the point I want to make. And when I'm reading a book, they keep changing which translation they're using 
at this point. You get suspicious? I'm very suspicious. Yes. So it means that we also need to prioritise and invest in good theological education that includes original languages. Yes, you said that a little too quickly at the end. That is, good theological education equals... <laughs> education in the original languages of Greek and yeah. Hebrew. Yes, that's what we really have. It's one of the great joys of working with in association with Moore College, but Moore College is not the only place in the world. But there are colleges now which have diminished their emphasis on Greek and Hebrew, especially some liberal colleges, because they're not as concerned with the meaning of the scriptures. Uh, they're much more postmodern. It's got to do with the meaning I want to draw from scriptures. So I don't need to know my Greek and Hebrew properly. But it's why you really do need to study it and carefully. You can get degrees in theology from major universities, especially in Britain, without actually studying Greek or Hebrew. Well, that's appalling from a Christian viewpoint. It is, and it diminishes the possibility of what we need to have in Christian congregations. You need at least one person in every congregation, God willing, who knows those original languages and who has the diligence and curiosity to keep asking what's going on yes. in the text, yes. uh, who doesn't necessarily accept the existing translation and says, well, what if that word is shifted? What is that word actually? Oh, okay. Well, we now use that word differently. Well, I need to explain to the congregation that the word that's here in our translation doesn't quite capture what the original Greek word was meaning. It's a funny, it's, it's a demarcation dispute, but a not a demarcation dispute between teachers and translators. We need translators who are working really hard at producing good translations for us. But we will always need teachers who will be able to explain to congregation members what the translators are doing, why they're doing what they're doing. They may be able to disagree with the translators. They may not have enough expertise to disagree, but they certainly will have enough to understand what it is that is the translator is trying to capture in modern English. Quite right. And for those listeners, though, Philip, who, who don't have Greek and don't have Hebrew... and Which aren't... is the majority, because you don't need it, because we've got brilliant translations. What would we want to say to those people who, uh, who don't have Greek and Hebrew in terms of how they approach this issue of Bible words and English words in the Bible? Well, in your reading, you need to read a modern English translation. But when it comes to theological dispute, when it comes to a matter of challenge of ideas, you need access to one of the less readable but more careful translations in terms of telling you what was in the original text. But it's also when you call upon your pastor to explain to you what the Greek and Hebrew was trying what the translator has been trying to express, so that you don't hang your theological hat on a particular word from a modern translation, which actually may not be in the text at all. It might be one of those added English words that have smoothed the sentence, because some you can never get perfect correlation between one language and another language. And sometimes there are words used just to smooth over. To make it work in English, for example, to it, make it work as an English sentence. The old King James Version put those in italics. And um, New American Standards used to do that as well. Oh, does it? Well, I remember uh, reading the Bible in church as a child. 
I've just been taught that italics are used for emphasis. <laughs> and so I read the passage from the pulpit to the congregation. Uh, it was a big congregation. It was a Christmas service. And I emphasised every word that was in italics, which meant I emphasised every word which was not actually in the Bible. <laughs> Oh, there we are. That's uh, the ignorance of youth. Yes. I think underneath all this as well, Philip, for us as Bible readers, as everyday Bible readers in English, there's a kind of an attitude thing here as well. There's a stance towards the text that we want to be curious and diligent about our reading of the text. So, Philip, what do we want to say in conclusion? Because the Bible's so important, because it's the living, active Word of God, and because it directs our lives and teaches and corrects and reproves and trains us, we want to keep working hard at what the words in the Bible mean and what the sentences in the Bible mean. And in order to do that, we just need to keep reading well. And that will inevitably involve, to some degree and at some level, getting in touch with what the original languages mean and making sure that the words we're using in English, and especially the words we're using to communicate those ideas in English, still mean what the Bible words meant. It's the same as reading for all books. It's just this book is such an important book. But it's the same. It's the activity. I read Shakespeare. It's the same. You read Jane Austen. It's the same. Whenever you read a a literature that is old, it's the same. It's actually true in modern language as well. We're going through the same process. It's just that the Bible is so important that we really do want to read it properly. But it's also because Christianity is about the word. And so the words actually matter to us, which is why everywhere Christianity travels, literacy increases. It's the character of the reason we created schools and persuaded governments into having universal schools where everybody went to school was because we want people to read their Bibles. So read your Bible. It's the best book to read. And to be a Christian is to be a person of the book. That's who we are. Thanks for the conversation today, Philip. And thanks, dear listeners, for being with us here again for this chat about the importance of words and especially Bible words. Um, Please get in touch. I'm sure there are words you might want to write in and ask us about, and that would be terrific. Just get in touch at tonyjpain at me.com. And in order to finish off, I suspect there's one really appropriate way to finish off, given everything we've said, which would be to pray and to pray a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer in English that hopefully we all still understand. Blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that encouraged and supported by your Holy Word, we may embrace and always hold fast the joyful hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.